0: For those of us staying, we are going to continue our walk through Ephesians. This week it is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. As a sign of the authority of God's word over us, I would invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. In him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the Word of God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. Uh, My name is Scott. It's my privilege this morning to get to open up the Word together with you. Uh, Excited to share what the Lord's been laying before me this week as I've been working on preparing this passage. The book in our Bible that we are going through called Ephesians, as we have mentioned already, is actually a letter that was written by Paul to a town named Ephesus. But to get us thinking about what Paul has written in our passage today, I actually want to read a couple of lines from a different letter that Paul wrote to a different church. These lines are from his first letter to Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Paul. One of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? As Paul writes to Corinth, he was very concerned with the danger of division in that church. There were people lining up behind different leaders. And we have no reason to believe that that's what was happening specifically in Ephesus. But Paul's concern over division in the church is what led him to write about the basis of Christian unity that we see in our passage today. Today, we live in a highly divided time. If I want to find or form a community around some extremely obscure thing that I'm excited about, I can do that. I can probably find it, and if it's not there, I can start it. And in some ways, that's incredibly good, right? I mean, I'm not saying that's a horrible thing. Um, It can be used to, to, to do wonderful things to connect you to people that have similar life experiences. But it can also be used to create division and destruction, And it can be really bad. And Paul wants better for this church in Ephesus. And so in our passage, he lays out the foundation for Christian unity. This passage calls us to rejoice in the reconciliation that you have in Christ that produces Christian unity. It breaks up into three pretty clean sections, and I'll organize the way I walk through the passage this morning. The first Two verses, uh, or three verses, cover alienation, 14 to 18 cover reconciliation, and then 19 through 22 cover the implications of being reconciled. Let me pause real quick before I get into that first section and pray. God, I need you. I need you to speak through me. I need you to communicate what you want us to hear this morning. Lead me, lead us. Would you cause the words of Scripture and my reflections on those words to transform and to change us. We can't do that. I can't do that. We need you. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians who were of Gentile origin. That title, Gentile, simply means that they weren't Jewish. And he asks them to remember. He wants them to think back in time, in their lives, to the time where they weren't yet Christian Gentiles, but they were just Gentiles and not Christians yet. And he lays out for them the spiritual realities that were true of them at that time. He says they were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. It says they had no hope, and they were without God in the world. And those are just in those first three verses. As we progress through the passage, we see even more. They were far off from God. There was a a dividing wall of hostility between them and Israel, God's people. There was no peace between God and them or them and God's people. They were strangers. They were aliens. This is a bleak memory He is asking them to reflect on. As Gentiles, they were alienated, hopelessly and helplessly separated from God and from his people. Now, this dichotomy between Jew and Gentile had a very physical identifier, and Paul touches on it at the beginning of our passage. See, Jewish families circumcised their boys in a religious ritual, eight days of age, to mark themselves as God's people, and Gentiles didn't. This is why Jews called Gentiles the uncircumcision, and they meant it in an insulting way. They didn't respect the the Gentiles, they didn't look up to them, they didn't regard them highly, And when Gentiles returned to the Jews as the circumcised, it was just as much of an insult in their minds. So this imagery we're given of a dividing wall of hostility. It's really accurate. The spiritual reality before Christ, the spiritual reality before Christ was that you had God, and his people, and then you had everyone else. Yes, there were ways for for Gentiles to be adopted into Israel, and we've highlighted some of those stories before. But the normal state of things was separation, alienation, and division. Now, Two things I want to say before I move on first is that this description of where Gentiles were at uh, before they came to Christ is also true about us. Some of the phrases that Paul might use aren't maybe the common ways that we would say it today, but it is all accurate for any of us who came to Christ from anything but a religiously orthodox Jewish background. And even if that was you, Most of these phrases are still accurate. We were separated from Christ. We were separated from God's people. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no hope. We were without God. We weren't at peace with God. We were strangers and aliens. And he's calling them to remember this former state of affairs. Why? Well, because he's about to paint an incredible contrast between that and their current reality. He wants them to remember how terrible their condition was so that when he tells them what God has done in saving them, their hearts will soar with gratitude and worship over how great God is and what he has done. That's the reason that he wants them to remember. And so I want to invite you to remember who you were before God rescued you. Be reminded of the theological realities that have just gone over. But also remember how your sin got lived out. The brokenness and the hurt and the pain that it caused in you and those around you. Now I'm not... Asking you to remember this to cause you to wallow, it's all a setup for where we're going. Now, I don't know if I should call this ironic or providential, but two of the most recent times that I have preached here have both had major themes in them of the Jews needing to separate themselves from the Gentiles. Ezra chapter 4, that I preached on, covered why the returned exiles had to reject the help that was offered by the local inhabitants of the land in the process of rebuilding the temple. And then when I preached in Ezra chapter 9, it was focused on Ezra confronting the Israelites for intermarrying those same peoples. So I'm really glad that I get this passage, because after setting up that huge separation between Jews and Gentiles, this passage presents the solution at what actually brings them together, and that's reconciliation and that's highlighted in the middle section of our passage. Now last Sunday Pat pointed out the huge turning point in chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 where Paul wrote but God. And we have we have that same kind of but God moment in our passage today in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is our turning point. Remember how bad things were, but now everything has changed. The solution that God brought came through the blood of Christ. What Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, and frankly to us, is that through his sacrifice on the cross, you who were once far off from God, separated because of your sin and your rebellion, have been brought near. You've been reconciled to God. You're no longer aliens and strangers, but he has made the two groups who were at odds. And he brought them together and united them into one body. In him. a reconciliation, I've said it a couple times, I need to make sure we're all clear on what that means. Reconciliation means bringing formerly hostile parties into a state of harmony. This is why Paul says that Jesus would reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So The very act of reconciling us both to God inevitably brings us into one body with each other. Now Paul tells us that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How has that happened? Well, verse 15 tells us how that was done. It said it was by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That wall was broken down literally by changing the rules. When you think of the Old Testament commandments, you can think of them in three general categories. There were laws about morality. There were laws that are considered ceremonial laws. Uh, These are things related to how to stay ritually pure or clean, how to eat, how to celebrate festivals, things like that. And finally, there were civil laws that governed judicial and legal matters over Israel. Punishments and things for breaking laws. Jesus doesn't abolish that moral law. Scripture tells us that he fulfills it because we couldn't. But because those laws are based upon God's moral character, they don't just disappear. But that middle one that I mentioned, the ceremonial law, Those are the laws that would have kept every Gentile perpetually unclean. And those have been abolished. And the removal of that ceremonial law is really what tore down that dividing wall of hostility. That ongoing ritual uncleanness would have kept any seriously minded Jewish person from ever being relationally close to a Gentile. They couldn't share a meal with them. Lots of them wouldn't even enter their home. That barrier has been removed. It simply isn't an issue within the body of Christ. So that wall is torn down. It's destroyed. In verse 17, we see that Jesus came and he brought peace with God to the Gentiles who had been far off. But it also says that he brought peace to Jews who, though they were near, were still not at peace. It's important for us to recognize that though those Jews that were comparatively near and had many advantages through things like having the law and having the temple, they still needed Jesus. They needed Jesus to come and bring peace to them just like the Gentiles did. See, if I bring two different people into alignment with me, they will inherently be brought into alignment with each other. That's what's happened in Christ. Vastly different people have been brought together into alignment with Christ, and that inherently, definitionally, brings them into alignment with each other. Earlier I asked you to remember what was true of you before you knew Christ. But God has saved you from that. Now I want you to recognize what God has saved you to. He has brought you near. He has made you his own dear child. I hope that as you've been hearing this, it's drawing your heart to joyful gratitude and love towards God for his amazing grace. Worship him for all that he has done. Rejoice that you have gone from far off to near. You have gone from death to life, from darkness to light. I hope you have the same reaction that I think the, the church in Ephesus would have had of being like, oh, wow. This is what was true, and now this is what is true. Oh, God, you're incredible. In verse 19, though, Paul writes, So then, he's letting us know that he is turning now to the implications that this should have for us. All these things he's said so far, and now he leans in on a couple of metaphors in these final verses of our passage this morning. The first is that they and we... Are a reconciled family. We are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. These are both ways of saying that we have been brought together. The language from early in the passage is that we are one man in one body. This is presenting to us the reality of the unity of the church. This is true. We the church are the united family of God. Now, when I say that, I do mean this church, Christ community, is a family. We are brothers and sisters with God as our Father. But I also mean the whole church, the big C, capital C church, not just this local expression of it. We the church, we are the family of God. We're family with the believers across town. We're family with believers across our country. And we're family with believers across the world. We have been united into one global family. You and I and everyone in the world carries a whole lot of different things that identify us. Identities, if you will. Our age, our gender, our occupation, our political stances, our life stage, our race, our marital status, where we're from, our cultural background, the list could go on and on. And some of those identities are perhaps really pivotal, pivotal to how we conceive of ourselves. But maybe for you, some of those that I listed aren't really that big of a deal and you don't even think about it that much. Being a member. Of the household of God, being a Christian, that is our primary identity. That trumps all other identities. We might be vastly different, you and I, in a dozen other ways or a hundred other ways. But if we've both been reconciled to Christ, then we're reconciled to one another. We're brothers, or we're sisters. Now, please hear me. I am not wanting to minimize the things that make you, you. But I am trying to maximize the most important thing about you. That's what brings you into alignment with the rest of the church. You are reconciled to God. I'll never forget something that happened many years ago uh, at a national conference for the staff of CRU, the campus ministry that I work with. Normally that conference just has staff from the United States, from all across the country. And there's usually a handful of people that come from, from outside of the U.S. But in this particular conference, Crew had brought very intentionally staff from every country that we have ministry in. And that's almost all of the countries in the world. It was incredibly visionary. Uh, I just loved walking around and seeing people sitting down and talking from all over the world and hearing all these different languages being spoken all the time. And on one of the nights, uh, it was I, I think maybe the, one of the last nights of the conference, they did uh, kind of a, uh, an Olympic-style Parade of Nations sort of a thing. And you had all the staff from all these other countries uh, and they had some stairs behind the stage so they kind of burst out from behind this curtain and they'd be carrying their flag and and the whole stadium, it's a, a basketball arena. We're all standing, there's music, we're clapping. It was just really, really fun. And at the end of the parade, I always get emotional when I think about this. At the end of the parade, two guys come out holding their flags and clasping hands and it was Israel and Palestine. I lost it. Because for me, that was just such an incredible picture of what the unity of the church should be able to accomplish. That Israeli believer and that Palestinian believer are brothers they're both chosen. They're both holy and blameless. They're both predestined for adoption. They're redeemed. They're forgiven. They both have hope in Christ. They're both saved and sealed with that same Holy Spirit. That's all from Ephesians chapter 1. But that list goes on and on. And that is true of every genuine believer with every other genuine believer. Regardless of their nationality, their race, their gender, Their theological camp, their favorite ice cream flavor, or any other category that you could come up with. Those two men, all the world would say, should hate one another. Their ancestors have been at each other's throat for as long as any of us can remember, and their countrymen are still there at it. But they're reconciled. Our foundation for peace within the church is that though we were once enemies of God, We were brought near to Him. And if two people are both brought to that same spot, then they're undeniably brought near to each other. So our capacity to live at peace within the church doesn't depend on agreeing with everybody about everything or with our identities being the same in these other areas because our core identities have been brought into alignment. In the 1700s, the famous evangelists George Whitfield and John Wesley had very strong theological disagreements. So strong were those disagreements that one point, Whitfield was asked if he thought that they would see John Wesley in heaven. And Whitfield's response was something very close to this: He said, "No, I don't think we'll see him in heaven. He will be so close to the throne of God." And we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. I love that Whitfield exhibited such grace and love, even though he had disagreements theologically with this brother in Christ. I'm not saying that theology isn't important and that we can't... but, But we can disagree about things and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. We can disagree about things that aren't central to our faith. And still be united in Christ. Now, I want you to remember that Paul is writing to Gentile believers. And those Gentile believers are entering into a broader church that started out pretty much all Jewish. And Paul is stressing this one family connection because it would have been really easy for them to see the differences between them and their Jewish brothers and think of themselves as outsiders, as being different, not belonging. But that's not true. They were treasured brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want to say this to you, Christ Community Church, especially if you're new here. And we have a lot of you who are still relatively new here. You are family. You are treasured and loved. You are valued. And we are so glad that you are here. You belong. I said there were a couple of metaphors that Paul uses in this section. The other one I want to spend a few minutes on is this. He says that we are together being built into a holy temple. I want to reread this last section, 19 to 22, for us. So then, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is odd-sounding, but it says that this temple has Jesus is the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation, and the rest of the church are being joined together into this structure of the temple. Now, If this wasn't a metaphor, that would be one strange-looking building, right? <laughs> but what is the function of a temple? A temple is where God dwells. A temple is where God is worshipped. And that is a really good description of the church. Not the church building, but the people of God. God dwells in us. Not in a God dwells in everything sort of pantheistic sort of way. No, God dwells in us as believers. He has placed his Holy Spirit in each and every believer. So he dwells in us. And it is in and through our lives that God is worshipped on the earth. Individually and collectively, worship is one of the main reasons that we gather week after week. There's a lot in our passage this morning, but at its core, Paul is laying out a foundation for Christian unity. And that's something that should bring us Incredible joy. Christian, you have been reconciled to God. Rejoice in that reconciliation that you have in Christ that produces Christian unity. Now, before I close in prayer, I want to say one other thing. This is a passage that's directed specifically to Christians, celebrating this unity. And all that I've been saying is somewhat presuming that you have entered into his family. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't challenge you. If you haven't yet trusted in Christ, he is offering you forgiveness for your sin. He is inviting you to come to him. You who are currently far off, he is inviting you to him. Allow him to draw you near. Allow him to give you the peace Allow him to adopt you into this global, multi-ethnic family of God that can and should be united by our common reconciliation. You're invited. Let me pray. God, we are so, so grateful for what you have done to accomplish our reconciliation. God, when I think about who, who I was and where I was going It amazes me what you have done for me. And every believer in this room has that same story. And we celebrate what you have done. We worship you for what you have done. We are so grateful. God, I do pray that we would live united to one another as a church body. Not just here in Christ's community, but the global body of Christ. That we would live in unity. Help us to major on the majors. And that I do pray for anyone here who hasn't yet been reconciled to you. God, would you help them see what it is that you're offering and draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.